Kubernetes is a cluster management tool open-sourced by Google. On Software Engineering Daily, we've done numerous shows on how Kubernetes works in theory. Today's episode is a case study in how to deploy Kubernetes to production at a company with existing infrastructure. It's Kubernetes in practice. Golf Now is a 15-year-old application written in C-sharp.net. It is a successful, growing business that is a division of NBC Sports. As Golf Now has grown, it has encountered scalability issues, and the engineering team at Golf Now decided to move its entire monolithic infrastructure to microservices running in Docker containers, managed by Kubernetes. Sharif Muhammad joins the show today to discuss migrating his company's application to Kubernetes. It's a great show for anyone who is moving a large team's application to Kubernetes or considering the technology for their own application. Before we get to this episode, a few quick announcements. If you're interested in advertising on Software Engineering Daily, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. There are more than 14,000 engineers that listen to Software Engineering Daily on a regular basis, so it's a great place to get your product out into the ears of developers or to advertise available jobs that you might have at your company. Also, if you're an engineer that's looking for an open source project to work on, check out Software Daily at softwaredaily.com. This is an open source news and information site about software. It's being led by Jeff Tribble, a member of the Software Engineering Daily community. You can also check out softwareengineeringdaily.com, which is the website for this podcast. You can find links to the Slack channel, my Twitter account, my email. You can find a link to sign up for our newsletter, Software Weekly. And with that, let's get to today's episode. Sharif Mohammed is a software architect at Golf Now. Sharif, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. So we've done a bunch of shows about Kubernetes, but most of the shows have been about Kubernetes in theory. Today is going to be more about Kubernetes in practice. You work at Golf Now, and uh, you were part of a migration to Kubernetes. Before we get into that migration, what does the company do? So the company is, we do a lot more. We actually sell tea times or e-commerce platform for tea times, but we do a whole lot more than that. We're really the golf industry's um, leading tech and services company. We do anything from business to business, uh, marketing, uh, things like that for our golf courses. We do business consumer, which is our e-commerce platform for tea times. Um, so we do a lot of things as far as like point of sale for the golf courses themselves. We have digital T-sheets, all kinds of stuff like that. I mean, we have an awesome team over here in Orlando, also internationally in Belfast, that is taking care of a lot of things that has uh, golf now uh, encompassing. Great. To give listeners a better idea of what golf now encompasses, there's a lot of things. There's also Golf Now Solutions. What does that aspect of the company do? So that part of the company is mainly for our golf courses. This is the part that I was talking about for the point of sale, the digital tee sheets, things like that. It's for mainly to get golf courses up and running with our technology so that they can integrate better into our ecosystem so that they could do things from uh, selling their tee times on our platform, which is Golf Now. Um or we can actually give them a booking engine that they could run locally on their websites that they iframe in that actually runs our software, but uh, hosts their inventory. Golf Now is 15 years old. It was started in 2001. What does the software architecture of Golf Now look like? So back in 2001, I guess I can give you kind of a history of it. So back in 2001, it was actually originally developed in C-sharp.net, ASP.net, um, with a SQL Server backend. And it stayed, I mean, we have that still a little bit today. Um, and it's scaled to a point where we just got to like, okay, this is the breaking point of SQL Server. Um, we cannot upgrade unless we make a, a lot of major changes. Um, and we were just growing uh, rapidly internationally and locally. Uh, and then also acquisitions of other companies, digital T-sheets and things like that kind of forced us into um, looking elsewhere. 
what's been the integration process when you acquire a company? So it's been painful, uh, to say the least. Uh, a lot of it is a lot of manual work with our data services team to make sure their data is integrated correctly um, via exports of their databases, things like that. So it was very cumbersome. And yet that was another thing that we needed to kind of uh, address as we moved forward when we do acquire other companies. Hmm. Does Golf now manage its own servers? Yes, it does. Okay. Uh, so is there any precedent for a re-architecture at Golf now? Have you, have you, uh, has the company done any major migrations or re-architectures in the past? We've done major migrations in the sense of moving data centers uh, from an external provider, provider to an internal one, which would be NBC, our parent company. Um, but we have not done anything as far as like software-wise uh, major overhaul, uh, from at least from the past two years. That's when we started it. So the company is growing. It's buying companies, but it's also growing in other ways. What are the other ways in which Golf Now is growing, and how is that putting stresses on the architecture? So our major pain point has been the data. Um, we've got a ton of inventory as we onboard courses. Each course has its own set of inventory, obviously, every day, every, every week, every month, everything like that. So it's just our data is growing rapidly. Um, our user base is also growing rapid, rapidly, um, which has prompted us to move away from where we are because of the fact that we cannot scale anymore with what we've got. Since we're stuck in one data center, we cannot scale out to another data center in the EU easily without having to make sure that the data integrity holds across the board. So how are those pains manifesting? Like when you say the data is a problem, the user growth is is a problem, well, I mean, maybe not a problem, but is uh, a challenge to deal with. What is that leading to? Is it leading to higher var variability in your load? Is it leading to slowdown because the queries to the database server are more intense? How is that manifesting in a poor user experience? It's definitely happening as far as um, the queries are getting a lot slower. They're doing a lot more on the database side. It's causing a lot of bottlenecks there. Um, it's just, it's hurting us in that sense. And then I, I think the biggest issue that we've got is the fact that our SQL server is our monolithic database that we're not able to really move around easily and um, get it to go from one data center to another because we're kind of stuck on SQL Server 2008. I know with new versions of SQL Server, it makes that job a little bit easier. But since we're stuck there due to some limitations, we, we weren't able to scale out the way we would have liked to if we had like SQL Server 2012, for example. Why is that? What's the significant difference between SQL Server 2008 and 2012? Um, I, I can't tell you exactly for sure. That's probably a better question for our data services guy. But um, I could tell you that as far as the way the code is set up, and I think just the, the store procedures that we're using and just the model that we have doesn't adhere to us being able to upgrade easily without much downtime. I have not done many shows about C Sharp or SQL Server, which is Microsoft's SQL product. Are there typical, I mean, there must be typical scaling patterns around these types of applications. Are are these, are the scaling strategies for C-sharp.net and SQL Server applications, are they markedly different than how you would scale a Linux application? Uh, that's a good question. I, I don't, I don't say, I, I wouldn't say that it's a huge difference. I mean, the patterns are essentially the same. It's really what, it's really the way you model your data in the back end. And if you model your data in a monolithic way, your application from the front is inherently going to be monolithic. Um, so I don't know if it's really necessarily the big difference. It's just the way that it was built out back in the early 2000s caused us to have this issue. You mentioned that licensing costs are actually also associated with this. How do licensing costs affect scaling C-sharp.net and SQL Server applications? So with Linux, right, you, the OS you don't have to pay for. You can spin up as many as you want, and all you need to really pay for is the compute. 
Whereas in, in the C-sharp world, you have to pay for Windows Server to run on each one of the VMs that you run on. And uh, obviously, I mean, I know containers are coming soon, and if they're not, they're pretty much here, but you have to pay for those essentially. And then SQL Server on top of that, with our massive data store, you have to pay for the compute, you have to pay for the licensee of the actual software, and it's becoming a huge cost pain point for us. It's been well over $200,000 a year easily. Wow. If not Holy more. smokes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's why people resent Windows. <laughs> um, so what was the deployment and monitoring process like for Golf Now before you re-architected? We'll talk about the re-architecture in a second. Sure. So, I mean, our monitoring was really as the VM up or down, CPU memory usage, that type of thing, uh, just the basic stuff that you've got out there. Um, we we used an APM for our code that kind of helps us with um, uh, bottlenecks. And um, outside of that, I can't really think of any other monitoring that we have. I know that on the data side, we had a lot of monitoring for data integrity and um, just the database health and things like that. Hmm. And eventually, you did decide to do this big re-architecture. What, what were the conversations leading up to this big re-architecture? So it was just basically coming to the point where how are we going to grow this thing um, so that it doesn't cost us too much more than it already is costing us? And can we handle the load on the current infrastructure as it is? And a lot of those questions were very fuzzy. Um, the fact that we couldn't run on the same infrastructure, that answer was a no, um, because it just wasn't scaling well enough. The, as far as cost goes, we knew that if we stayed in this infrastructure and this architecture, that our costs would be, it would actually just grow. We wouldn't be able to really cut it down. Um, so we started thinking like, okay, well, can we really break this thing apart and move it out? in a different architecture. And that's kind of where things kind of started to uh, snowball for us there. Um, and, and really the foresight that um, our VP had with thinking of, okay, let's create an architecture team or a research and development team so that we can start looking towards the future and make sure that we could actually steer this ship in the right way as we move along. You wanted to use microservices, containers. You wanted to rebuild as a Linux infrastructure. What are the high-level architectural changes that would be required with a shift from this Microsoft-based infrastructure to the Linux infrastructure? So the biggest thing was is we needed to start off breaking things apart. We had to break apart our big monolith as we have it today but break it apart into C-sharp, which is we're still actively doing that. So we're not, by no means we're completely finished with it, but we're still doing it. Um, so we had to just kind of change our mindset about, okay, we need to have smaller services that do one thing very well, uh, push data around via a message bus and just interact in that manner. So we had to kind of just shift our mindset in that way. So we started rebuilding a lot of the services in that way to get us closer to that point. And actually a year ago, we ended up purchasing uh, a company um, that was already running in Heroku Compose and was kind of sort of trying to go towards this microservice architecture. And they had a Mongo database as their backend and we had already been thinking about going that direction. So we purchased a company really based on that idea that we were trying to move in that way. And again, it gave us a head start in, in this endeavor as we went through it. What did that company do? Did they have, did they have a product that was, that fit in with golf now, or was it totally an aqua hire? It was, it was a product that fit in with golf. Now they had already, uh, a business to business marketing platform, um, inventory management, uh, as far as tea times go, obviously and um, a business-to-business -business, um, booking engine as well. So it was very in line with what we already did. And it was just more of like, okay, well, 
they're getting to the point where we want to be. So let's purchase them and, and get the ball rolling. So just to zoom out for a sec, so people kind of understand the product here and why acquisitions are common for you. The The product, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the product is you basically can use golf now to schedule a tee time, to schedule golfing outings uh, across all of these different golf courses. So different golf courses have different uh, probably ske- internal scheduling systems, and golf now is sort of a layer where you, no matter where you are in the world or the United States, you can schedule a golf outing uh, anywhere at these at these different places. And so when these smaller companies have been created that do re- maybe regional scheduling and stuff, it makes sense to, to for you to buy these companies and consolidate. Is that accurate? Yes, that is very accurate. Okay. So it's similar to if people have heard of HomeAway, HomeAway's business model, where HomeAway did something that was sort of like Airbnb, but they acquired all these different uh, companies that did short-term rentals and stitched it together in a way where they get some economies of scale out of that. So this makes a lot of sense to me. Um, And so it sounds like you acquired a company that was uh, smaller... Uh, but had a an architecture that you could uh, maybe induct off of. Correct. Yeah. So we we felt like, as I said earlier, it's the way we wanted to go anyway. We were already thinking about Node.js. We were already thinking about um, going the Mongo data DB route, and that was already there for us. So it was just easier for us to just kind of take it over work off of that and create the platform as a whole for us uh, for the rest of the infrastructure to move over to. Can you run .NET on the Linux infrastructure? There is there is a library called Mono that gives you that ability, but it kind of strips away some of what you can do in .NET. I, I don't know exactly what it is that it strips away, but it does strip away some of the um, the capabilities. Um, so we, we did think about that route, but we just felt like it was kind of a, an afterthought. We really didn't want to go that way. We thought, we thought we were going to rewrite this thing. So we might as well just start off. Right. C-sharp.net was recently open sourced. Does that affect the strategy at all? No, not, not at all. I I don't believe so. Um, I think it's because. Even if it does get to a point where we can trust it uh, on a Linux box or, or even if uh, Windows containers become something that we could use, it still fits in with this entire platform as we're building it out, especially because we're using message buses in between all these services. So in theory, we could pull out any service and um, rewrite it in any way we want as long as the interface is correct between uh, each service. Explain why moving to Docker containers was an important part of this project. Sure. So the idea was is that we we had this utopia that we wanted to think about when we first started. And we were thinking about, okay, how do we, if we were to rebuild this thing, what would we want out of this platform? And some of these things were self-healing. We wanted auto-scaling. We wanted to have inner data center federation wanted to deploy at any moment um, if we wanted to um, automate tests, monitor everything, and and the list went on and on. Um, And as we were researching and doing a lot of this um, kind of discovery of what we should do and which way we should go, Docker, I think at the time, was about a year old. And it wasn't really adopted by everyone. But the idea of the containers was something that was really interesting to us. So we we started going along, doing more research and figuring out that we do want to run something like this within a containerized environment, especially because if we're going to have microservices, there's a potential for us to have hundreds, if not thousands of microservices running at any given time. And having something like that running on VMs on a typical infrastructure that um, would run in like Google Cloud or whatever makes it very difficult to manage. You would have to have an operations team that is probably 50 deep for us to be able to manage such a thing. So we just felt like containers, Docker in general, was the way we needed to go. But then we had more questions after that, of course, because running Docker on your local 
it's awesome because it's very simple, very small. But then we started thinking about, okay, well, if we had these hundreds or thousands of pods, uh, sorry, not pods, containers, how would we manage them? And then that's when we got into, okay, orchestration. What does that mean? How do we get along with that? And what do we do from there? Okay, so uh, was it hard to get buy-in from the management and the other members of the team in order to begin this re-architecture process? Um, I wouldn't say it was hard. And, and then the reason was, is, is like I said, I think it was the way it was set up. Um, my VP ended up kind of pulling me aside and was saying, okay, I want you and um, your team to figure out which way we can go and create a POC for us. And then based on that POC, we'll, we'll start expanding, I guess, who is going to be involved as, as we go along. So it wasn't necessarily too hard to uh, sell the idea, I, I think, because our VP was already sold on the idea um, of being able to re-architect and uh, go in this direction. And the fact that we had a POC to show everybody as we moved along to kind of prove to them, hey, this can be done and this is the way it should be done. Uh, it, it wasn't too difficult to sell it, in my opinion. POC is point of contact? Uh, no, sorry. Uh, it's um, proof of concept. A proof of concept. Of course, that makes more sense. <laughs> um, Sorry, I should have said what it was. Okay, so can you help me understand the sequencing of events that happened here? Did you start with start with just trying to get people to experiment with Docker internally and gradually upticked how people were using Docker and then eventually you got to the orchestration point? Yeah, so it actually it began really with myself. I, I started playing around with Docker, tried to vet it and understand it and figure out how we could utilize it. And um, as I kind of saw the benefits from there, excuse me, as I saw the benefits from there, I started then incorporating others in, in this endeavor and saying, hey, why don't you install Docker? Look what it can do. You needed a RabbitMQ setup or a Mongo database setup. Here's a, an image that you could just get up and running and you're, and you're done. You're ready to go. You don't have to worry about configs or anything like that. It's just there. So as I was able to do that, more and more people were, were able to give me more feedback and tell me, I like this, I don't like that. And from there, it kind of just kind of grew almost like a virus, um, kind of started infecting everybody and getting everybody on board with that. Um, and then at that point... When I when I knew everybody was kind of getting on the Docker bandwagon and everybody was feeling on the team like it's the way we should be going, that's when kind of the orchestration layer um, of how are we going to orchestrate all these things, that's when it kind of hit. We had to do a lot of uh, research on that. We um, were playing around with things like Mesosphere, Deus, uh, Fleet, Panamex, Compose, and of course, Kubernetes. Um and all of them had the strengths and weaknesses. Um, but I think at the end of the day, we kind of were at a fork in the road where we were trying to figure out where do we want to use Mesosphere um, or Kubernetes. So the decision really that kind of uh, broke, the, broke it for us, broke it down for us was Kubernetes really had the backing in the community. And at that time, we had discovered Kubernetes um, actually almost exactly a year ago. It had just been... Uh, announced at uh, OSCON, and um, we were we were just thinking like, okay, well, the community is there. It's backed by Google. Um, it's actually based on Google technology. So we felt like, okay, well, let's just go with that route and try to play play around with that and create a, a proof of concept there with okay, Kubernetes. So, so we'll get into the orchestration a little bit, but I, I want to go a little bit deeper on what you said there about Docker, about how it spread virally, its usage spread virally through your company. This is something that I've heard from several people. What is it about Docker that gives it a sense of virality, particularly like a network effect within the company? I think from what I saw is how easy it was to get yourself set up and running. Um, I was literally able to create an image for people on the team for certain things that they needed to run and just said, here you go, just 
Docker run this with this particular command, and it just worked for them. I think the point is, is the fact that it is just works. Um, now, obviously, when you get deeper into it to link things together, it gets a little bit hairier from there. But I think the the point of us being able to give images to each other and it just comes up and runs, I think that's the reason why it becomes viral. Okay. And if there is somebody listening out there who wants to bring this type of portability, this, this Docker virality into their organization, what kinds of applications should they be starting with? How can they unleash this viral nature into their own company? I mean, I would definitely say just uh, start with docker.com and, and get everything up and running the way they have their tutorials set up. I mean, well, that's I, how I mean more like, I mean, more like, I'm sorry, I should have been more clear. What are the, like, should they start with internal applications? Should they start with like the job board application, something mm-hmm. that is not production sensitive? Um, you know, how can you show people, hey, look, this is something that we can use in production? Gotcha. I, I, I understand the fact that we should probably do something that's smaller. I mean, I'll tell you how we did it. We kind of went full bore into it and we said, okay, we're going to use something that uh, does make money, something that, that um, is not super visible, but sort of visible in the sense of like we have um, some reservations through it, but it's not, if it goes down, it's not going to kill us. Uh, but if it goes down, it's not a good thing either. I think going with that approach is better, uh, and I'll tell you why. I think it's because if you do just a smaller app that really doesn't give much value, a lot of people may just say, oh, that's that was just a simple app. Of course, it'll work that way. But when you give something, when it has a little bit more substance to it, something that um, people can actually say, okay, this is a smaller a smaller scale of what we could see in the grand scheme of things, I think it sells people more on it. So, and then that's kind of how we started it. We went with that company that we um, that we had acquired, and we took their booking engine and some of the microservices that they had in the background and started converting those, and making them run within containers and linking them together in Docker itself. Before we did anything with orchestration and, and um, uh, like a virtual DNS or anything like that. Um, we showed that it can be done. And I think that kind of proof of concept helped sell the idea more and gave us more and more momentum. Eventually, you did come to this question of orchestration. Explain what the purposes of a container orchestration platform are. So the purpose really is, is the management and health of the entire cluster. When you run containers, um, they're easy to bring up. Um, you can link them together, obviously, with, with Docker itself, but it's not sustainable. The problem is, is that how do you easily spin up um, multiple versions of a particular image that you want? Um, how are you going to be able to make sure that that container stays alive? Um, and how do you link them together in a, a much easier fashion? That, that's where you need an orchestration layer um, to be able to answer a lot of those questions. What were the specific requirements that Golf Now needed from an orchestration platform? Um, I think the biggest requirement was is that I don't want to be called at night, <laughs> woken up in the middle of the night because something went down. Uh, the other big thing was is auto-scaling and um, the fact that we wanted to be able to go between data centers and federate all our data between them easily. So can you explain how the orchestration platform solved your problems? Sure. So with Kubernetes, we were able to config out all of our applications um, in the sense of we want a particular application and we define it in in such a way with its environment variables and how it's supposed to run. And we give it a name uh, with the service. That service then is registered into um, uh, the cloud DNS that Kubernetes provides. And we are able to now go and communicate with that service directly for those containers that are running behind that service. So what it did was is it, it made us um, be able to deploy all these microservices out easily with particular names in front of them and not have to worry necessarily about IPs, ports, 
things like that at that level so that if a, a service goes and needs to communicate with another service or that service needs to communicate with our messaging layer, our message bus layer, it just does it by name. Um, and it makes life a lot easier. And then it also gave us the ability to auto scale. Um, we know that we're going to have a larger load for whatever reason. It's easy for us to go and say, all right, we want this particular deployment to auto to scale up to such and such a uh, number of pods. Uh, we also wrote uh, in-house uh, an auto scaler based on load of messages in our uh, messaging queue, which we use, uh, it's called RabbitMQ. So based on that load and the number of messages we have in there, we go and automatically scale our consumers on the back end to make sure we handle that, um, that influx. That's cool. So what does the term scheduling mean in the context of golf now's application so i guess scheduling would mean for us is that just really deployment i think that's uh, i think that's what it would mean for us just deployment and the fact that we want it to always be up and running so if a host go, host node goes down it reschedules itself somewhere else um if the pod itself or a container ends up going down it can bring itself back up. So it's it's constantly making sure your desired state is where it needs to be. And the nature of this automated scheduling, how does this contrast with how scheduling was performed in the old architecture? So that scheduling was, was very cumbersome for us, unfortunately. We would have to go spin up new VMs and um, those VMs really didn't come to us very easily. It would take us maybe two to three weeks to provision these VMs um, based on a lot of um, red tape that we had to go through to make sure the VMs were exactly the same as the other VMs. There was testing involved. Um, our QA team needed to go in there and make sure things ran the way they were supposed to run. Uh, we had to get our operations team to deploy the code and set up the box um, in the sense of IIS, the configs and things like that needed to be there. Uh, so it was it was a nightmare to say the least. It's been very difficult for, it was very difficult for us to provision these things. So explain how you compared the different container orchestration platforms that you were considering. I know you, you ended up on Kubernetes. You said this is largely due to the community around Kubernetes, but I imagine there was also plenty of technical analysis that you partook in before deciding on Kubernetes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, 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 I quite honestly, I don't remember exactly why the others I, I didn't go with, um, but I could tell you Kubernetes from where we are now and how much it's helped us, um, it was the right decision. Really, the, the biggest thing that I think that sold us on Kubernetes is the fact that we can easily easily schedule and, and everything, but these other products had the same idea in it. Um, but Kubernetes gave, because I had this ideal. The ideal was I want us to be able to run all our applications and even our databases within the same infrastructure in the same way. So basically I want to containerize our data layer as well as containerize our messaging layer and our app layer. Uh, Kubernetes was the the one that kind of stood out to us that gave us that ability to be able to run everything on there um, because we had things like Cloud Foundry that was in front of us that we were trying to get to, but Cloud Foundry really was only for the application layer, not necessarily for the data layer. We'd have to go and build out our own VMs. And I wanted to get away from the VM world because of how much pain we had to endure in the past because of it. So I think that was the biggest selling point for us the fact that um, there was constant change in a good way for Kubernetes. There was constantly things being updated and upgraded. Um, and us ourselves, we went in the code and um, have contributed back in some ways to um, be able to spin up the clusters easily and things like that. It was just, I guess, the ease of use and the fact that it gave us the ideal of being able to run everything in one place um, is really what kind of sold it for us. Did you consider going with a product that would provide support in addition to the technology? Like Rancher, for example, has this platform where you can use Kubernetes, but you also get this layer of uh, usability, and then they support you if you pay for their services. 
So you're saying would we consider uh, did support? You, did you consider? Did that? we consider? Yeah. At the time, honestly, there really wasn't anybody supporting Kubernetes uh, oh, okay. in that sense uh, because we started this uh, last year in uh, September of two, uh, 2015. So there really wasn't, at least I didn't see any, there really wasn't there. So we really had to buckle down and be our own support. And I think that was really good for us, uh, to say the least, because we ended up learning uh, a ton about the networking within Kubernetes. We ended up learning how to um, fix production issues when, when there were when they were there. So, but that's not to say that these products are not good for us. I, I would think as we uh, grow, as as the team grows, that needs to support uh, Kubernetes and this infrastructure, we would probably want to invest in something like that, just in case the expertise is not there on the team because somebody left or, or whatever the case may be. Hmm. So take me back to that point at which you were migrating last year. And I mean, was there a lot of stuff to read that would give you guidance as to how to do this migration? Or was it really more like the Wild West? It was it was more like the Wild West. Um, there there was a lot of reading definitely for us to be able to learn how to use Kubernetes, how we would want to um, set it up and and just have it as part of our our SDLC software development lifecycle. There was a lot of that, but there wasn't necessarily how should you migrate. So we had to kind of really think about how we can migrate such a thing. So. We figured, all right, microservices is the way we need to go. And the point of microservices is for us to be able to move things around and it not get affected. It should not affect the entire system as a whole. So that was kind of the route we took. We figured, okay, let's um, figure out what are the smaller pieces as far as microservices go in, in the infrastructure. And let's start moving those off one at a time into the new cluster. But just make sure that over um, uh, the internet, we could still make them communicate. So, for example, we had a um, we had our, all our Mongo databases in Compose. Uh, so, what we ended up doing is taking some of those smaller databases and moving them into Kubernetes, into that cluster, and then just making sure our Heroku apps point now towards the new cluster. And that's kind of how we piecemealed it. We just did a little bit at a time. And we just started getting more and more confidence in doing that. And it just, the ball kept on rolling for us. And we ended up moving everything within about, I would say, uh, two to three months. We ended up moving everything off of these third-party um, companies into our own infrastructure. Did you have to first say, like, we're, we need to put every component of our application into containers or... Can you spin up Kubernetes, put one portion of your application in, that's in a container on Kubernetes, and then gradually migrate stuff to Kubernetes? Yeah, that's exactly what we did. We the started. Yeah, we that's exactly exactly. We we set up uh, a new container for a particular application. We migrated it over. Just made sure that all the other stuff that communicated with it worked still as it should, and then we started moving them over uh, one at a time. Can you tell me more about that onboarding process? What What is the pr typical procedure for containerizing a portion of your application and moving it to Kubernetes and making sure it's compliant with everything else? Right. So at first, it was um, we were just trying to get a sense of how we want to create our containers and standardize them in a way as well, because uh, we are PCI compliant, so we have to make sure we have a lot of standards around all these things and uh, a way to back them up so that we could show change tracking essentially of what has changed. So we had to kind of define what our Docker file is gonna look like. And since we were running Node.js, um, we were able to kind of have a template um, in a sense for each one of our applications. Now, when we went to the data layer, things got a little bit hairier there because then each database kind of had its own way of um, coming up into a, into a container. So we had to kind of modify that a little bit, but that was kind of the, the exception to the rule there. So what we ended up doing is just, we tried to standardize how our container should look so that when we go and go and grab our new application, 
we could easily migrate it into a container just like all the other ones. I hope that answered your question. I'm not sure. It does, for sure. <laughs> you mentioned that the whole software development lifecycle looks different today at Golf Now. How has that changed? Give me a macro perspective for how it contrasts with the past. Sure. So the way it worked in the past, maybe I can tell you what happened in the past and I can tell you where we're at now. So the way it worked in the past was it was um, we were still agile. We would still have our development process happen. It goes to QA, QA tests, it comes back and that sort of thing. But our pain, our biggest pain point was when it got to um, getting it deployed to an, a QA environment. We could not guarantee that the configs were the same across the board from the developer's machine to the QA environment to our production environment. We had a lot of pain points in the sense of uh, when it goes to QA, it doesn't quite work like it did on the developer's machine. When it goes to production, it didn't quite work like it did on the QA um, environment. And a lot of it was because of configuration and the differences in how the code was deployed and handed down the line. Uh, so we wanted to get rid of that with this new infrastructure. So the new way that we do it is, and, and the fact that we have containers, it really helps us in being able to achieve this, is that the config that's running on the developer's machine is identical to the config that is running in QA and in production. So as it moves down the pipeline, we don't have to worry so much about configs being different or, um, or anything of that nature. So we can really test it from beginning to end and be, be confident in throwing it out there into production. And the fact that we have automated tests as well now, whereas before we didn't, and we did to a smaller extent, but now our mantra is 100% code coverage and testing so that we could run it as part of our, our uh, continuous, continuous integration pipeline also gives us a little bit more um, to to look forward to as we went forward. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm realizing something that I don't quite understand, and maybe I'm, um, maybe I'm just stupid or missed something, but how did you containerize the portions of .NET if you are not running that .NET on Linux architecture? So the .NET piece, the, the some of the because we didn't migrate everything from .NET over yet, we still have some things in .NET, um, but the majority of our platform as it stands today, we are in this whole Linux container environment. Oh, and then it's the as data layer. Move, I'm sorry, because it's the data layer. It's the data layer. We also have uh, applications in there as well, like our B2B um, uh, marketing platform is in there. Our business-to-business e-commerce platform is also in there. Are those built with Rails or something? Those are all built in Node.js. Node.js, right. Yep. Okay. So do... You know, what else has changed? Like, does the does the monitoring story look a lot different today? Yeah, it does, actually. We, I feel like we have a lot more insight into what's actually happening uh, within the cluster. As you spin up uh, Kubernetes, you get a lot of things like uh, Grafana and InfluxDB to be able to uh, kind of in- instrument all of your pods that are running as well as just the nodes themselves. Uh, we also were able to, since we have this ease of being able to throw things onto the cluster, we actually built some of our own monitoring tools. For example, we have one that we created that um, monitors our databases. And it doesn't just monitor a database in the sense of whether it's up or down. It literally actually goes and hits the database, it queries it, and comes back with, yes, it was fine or no, it was not. And then we use, uh, we kind of expose down an HTTP endpoint so that we can use Pingdom in the background to let us know if things go up or down based on even the data layer. So not just on the application side. So how does the organization as a whole feel relative to before you migrated? Like how, is there a, is there a different feeling in the air of the software development environment? Like things are just easier to get done? Yeah, I can definitely tell you the teams that have been able to migrate over to this new infrastructure, they, they feel like there's a lot more flexibility, a lot more freedom. Um, I think it, overall, just a lot more confidence in what they're building and what they're putting out is 
is going to be correct. Um, it, it just and 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 it kind of also created smaller teams for us because now we're trying to go with this whole microservice paradigm. It creates more. Um, what's the word? Um, just ownership of the particular services that we're building out. So now our our operations is is more of a not just one team. It's kind of spread amongst everybody. So how how long has it taken to get to this point, and what uh, what were the things that uh, along the way in the migration were really painful? Were there was there anything along the way where you were like starting to doubt doubt whether this migration would actually work, or did it was it just seamless the entire way? It definitely was not seamless. I wish it was, but it definitely was not seamless. Um, so uh, the way it kind of happened was um, September of last year, uh, we were slated to kind of prove out whether we wanted to go to this containerized environment or do we want to go into a cloud foundry type of envi- environment, a, a PaaS, a platform as a service environment. Um, and we had a team in NBC build out our uh, uh, Cloud Foundry environment, and then my team was building out the Kubernetes environment. And it was at the end of the day in January. We were supposed to by January fifteenth. We had kind of had to everything pencils down, and we kind of test it and go from there. Um, as we went along, my team was actually able to finish by December fifteenth, so a month earlier with Kubernetes, and we were able to prove out that this was the way we wanted to go. So we kind of just went in that direction. So now the the real work ended up beginning in the the January timeframe of us trying to bring things over into production. And we had a major issue actually in in the sense of uh, we had multiple clusters running, multiple Kubernetes clusters running, and we were noticing a lot of dropped packets. Um, Response times were horrendous, and it just was not working the way we expected it to work. We were thinking why are so many people thinking Kubernetes is this great thing and it's not even handling 100 requests per minute type of thing? So we were banging ahead against that for about two to three weeks and really got deep into the internals of Kubernetes and learned a lot about the networking. And we came to find out it was our problem. We ended up running the two clusters in the same subnet, which means... The masters had essentially the same IP address and um, the minions at the time, they were called minions, but the host nodes were actually talking at times to the wrong master master node. And we would sometimes get uh, responses, sometimes we wouldn't. And we just had the epiphany one morning. We were like, that's got to be it after learning all these network things that uh, are within Kubernetes. So we ended up killing that one cluster, the QA cluster that we had, and everything just was night and day. It was super fast for us. It ended up working great. And we actually had to spin up uh, the new cluster and modify the kubup script that's used to account for the fact that you need to go to a different subnet uh, subnet, and not have this type of situation happen again. So that was one. Um, another issue that we had, we noticed that as you grew uh, with more and more pods and more and more services, the kube DNS, which is a, a Kubernetes system uh, application that runs, would not scale well when you had too many pods running. So we started seeing that issue again where things were getting dropped, slowness was happening, and we realized that it was the DNS that was getting saturated, the internal DNS on Kubernetes getting saturated. So all we had to do there is just expand those pods to, I don't remember how many they were at the time. I think there were three, and then we brought them up to like 10 or something, and and it worked a whole lot better. So it was definitely by no means a smooth transition, but I think with the rough patches, it caused us to learn so much more about the cluster and the way Kubernetes works and gave us more confidence in the infrastructure as a whole. And it wasn't just a a fly-by-the-seat-of-our-pants thing and just trust that Kubernetes is doing what it needs to do. What advice would you give to software teams who are considering migrating to Kubernetes? Uh, the biggest advice would be get a team that can focus on this migration and learn it. 
uh, without having a team that can focus on such a thing, you're never going to get anything done. You're going to just have one leg in, one leg out, and you're never going to move on. And the fact that you are not able to move forward because you can't have that focus, you're going to start thinking there are problems with the cluster, problems with Docker or Kubernetes or problems with just that infrastructure as a whole or that platform as a whole because you're not able to focus. And it's really because you're not giving it the time of day that it needs. So I think that's the biggest thing. And um, I would say struggle. Uh, the struggle is good. It's a good thing. It, it makes you learn a lot. <laughs> right. Always be struggling. Yes. Uh, great. Well, Sharif, I think this has been an awesome conversation. I have really enjoyed it. It's been very illuminating into how how Kubernetes is actually being deployed in the real world. And it's also uh, quite an interesting study in a 15-year-old application really reaping the benefits of moving to Docker, moving to Kubernetes. And it sounds like not really having any intractable issues. I mean, certainly there were difficulties, but it doesn't sound like any more difficulties than a typical uh, migration. Um, so I don't know. I think this is this has been a great show. I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. It's been, it's been fun, actually. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Sharif. This has All been right. great. Cool. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow. 